I doubt if there is any problem, social, political, or economic, that would not melt away before the fire of such a spiritual undertaking. We're live. Welcome to another fantastic, fabulous, and wonderful edition of the Lamp and Liquor podcast, uh, where the know-nothings were right about us, uh, society is decadent, and our response is, is really just to have a drink over both issues. But unfortunately, this is kind of the Lamp and Liquorless podcast, because we're recording this um, like in uh, noon central time and like 1 p.m. So I'm, I'm adding on to my defi- deficit of decadence by having a LaCroix, like, like oh. the millennial I am, and a coffee. So it's like together. I'm, yep. I've got my coffee. In my really cool mug, if you can see that. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. That's nice. You know, yeah. if you really wanted to add on to like the decadence of being a millennial, you would have like soy latte something with oh, your coffee. Yeah. So I haven't gone that far. Um, no. I don't want to pile up a deficiency diet deficit <laughs> as bad as the national debt or something. <laughs> anyway. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So how was your how was your New Year's, Peter? My New Year's was great. How was yours, Thomas? Uh, it wasn't bad. I was, well, I was like, not to sound too pious and holy, but I was like, reading the bible when the new year came in i heard a bunch of fireworks going off and I'm like oh cool whatever <laughs> we're, on, we're on a 2021 a secular holiday you know yeah it's, it's like you know the real new year started at the beginning of of december with, that's right with, uh, that's with, right with the advent season but uh whatever yes. everyone will ca- they'll catch up eventually uh hopefully we start up that catholic monarcho state and no, i'm just kidding um <laughs> anyway so the reason we're recording um during the middle of the day is this uh podcast we're doing something a little bit different today or for this episode i should say um is we weren't actually planning on doing this episode, but it came up um, kind of in a stroke of, of thought uh, or genius. I don't want to ascribe too much genius to myself, but it was it was a good idea. Um, uh, there's a good friend of my family here in Kenosha because I'm back <clears throat> I'm back in Wisconsin uh, for part of break. Um, there's a good friend of our family, a priest, uh, the diocese, Archdiocese of Milwaukee, I should say. Uh, he was the pastor of Our Lady of Mount Carmel. Uh, parish, which I think I've mentioned before on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he was there for 40 years. Uh, he was ordained in 1955. Um, so he entered seminary, I think, in 1944. So while World War II was still, was still going on, uh, his name's Father John Raketa. And so it popped in my head, like, you know, maybe it'd be great to have a, an episode with him. And so we were able to sit down uh, and we recorded an interview. There's no video uh, for it. We just set up a mic um, and I just came over to his apartment. He's retired now, uh, living, living the good life of a retired, retired priest, saying mass for some people here and there and uh, just kind of living life like that. So we, I came, went uh, over to his apartment um, and uh just had a good chat with him about uh, his different life, what it was like in the seminary, because uh, he was seminary from like 44 to 55, so about about 10 years. Um, so a different stories from that comes out. Um, and then he kind of had a few different parish assignments, and then he ended up at Our Lady of Mount Carmel for 40 years. And me and my family, we kind of came in at the tail end of, of his time at Our Lady of Mount Carmel. Um, me and my brothers, two of my brothers, I believe, received... Um, the first Holy Communion and um, our first Sacrament of Reconciliation uh, from him. So he was, a, he was a really strong pillar of faith in the, not only for, for my family, but also for the Kenosha Catholic community um, as well, a really a, a mainstay of the town. Um, and so he's got a lot of really interesting, cool things to say. He's uh, lived a long time. He's seen a lot of things. He's been to a lot of different places and he's got uh, some really great stories to tell. So um, I, hope, I hope all of you guys enjoy it. Um, and so I guess without further ado, here's the interview with Father John Raketa. Um, I guess at first I'm wondering, 
um, why when why did you enter um, seminary and like when roughly like what's kind of the backstory between that? Uh, I well, I went into the minor seminary after eighth grade, mm-hmm. and I think I was most impressed by the two priests that were in my parish. Mm-hmm. Father Pierce was the pastor, and uh, I think he was. Uh, he didn't. He did never. No, he did not impress me by his scholarliness mm-hmm. or his um, liturgical um, discipline, mm-hmm. but simply by his good kindness, his goodness, mm-hmm. and his uh, all those things, mm-hmm. and his dedication to his people. Oh, that's cool. So mainly more his pastoral uh, side yeah. as a priest. Yeah. Uh, which um which parish? Was that again? I've never heard that. Immaculate Conception in Milwaukee. Oh, was that one on the south side? Yeah. Or, oh, cool. What was that? Um, what was like? Was it in, in that uh, Italian? Church? No, it was an Irish parish. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I thought there was no, no, been an, an Irish parish. Oh, really? What was that like then? It was great. Oh, really? Uh, we have the there was a full school. We have the Sisters of Mercy. Uh, of the Union, founded by Mother Macaulay. <laughs> We had a full school, uh-huh. and um, it it was ideal. Mm-hmm. Ah, that's cool. Um, so, when did you enter seminary? Um, in uh, it was Charles. It's still it was Charles Barmeo, correct? The name of the seminary? Yeah, yeah. Mm, sorry, my, my. Uh, yeah. No, it was uh, Saint Francis de Sales. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I remember that. And the motto of the seminary is "You are the salt of the earth." Oh, that's cool. That's cool. I remember because um, I visited the seminary a couple times, um, and it was really cool because they have all those those old trees on the, yeah. the drive-in, and you're you're going towards um, towards the front of it, and it's got that very imposing um, imposing facade. And, yeah. Yeah, it's a cool place. Um, I heard a couple of stories that they're like, aren't, aren't, aren't there tunnels underneath between the different buildings? Yeah, but stuff? I think the, those are really for heating. But oh, I, really? I'm, not, I'm not sure. Okay. In my time, I don't know if we ever heard about them too much. Okay, because that's just what I've heard, that you could like, if you really yeah. wanted to sneak through uh, between the different buildings. And it was, um, it was really started um, as a seminary for German-speaking priests. Oh, really? Yeah. So. Uh, and then as time went on, of course, this all changed. But mm-hmm. uh, at one time, that's what, that's what it originally was for. Mm-hmm. Didn't um, Mad King Louis help fund it a little bit oh, or yes. something? That's what Louis, I heard. Louis of Bavaria. Oh, okay. Uh, in fact, I did a translation for a letter for Monsignor jo- uh, Peter Leo Johnson, who was the who taught history there. And the reason why, I mean, he could have done it, could have done it himself, but it was written in German script. Oh, no. And, uh, but in there, the king says, um, I'm sending you so much money. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, remember, you are to make good Catholics of these people, but also good Germans. <laughs> oh. Yeah. And uh, King Ludwig uh, sent... Uh, the picture of the Annunciation to Old Ma- St. Mary's Parish in Milwaukee. Uh-huh. And he also sent the painting of St. Uh, jo- uh, Joseph uh-huh. to St. Joseph's Parish in Milwaukee. Oh, okay, cool. That's kind of cool that he had the combination. Where it was yeah, like good was Catholics, but also... Mad Louis. Oh, man. He was the one um, wh- He was the one who built that castle. 
What was it Many called? castles. Oh, that is true. But isn't there... The, what's that? I'm, I'm still I'm missing out on that particular um, castle that never got finished. Uh, well, he built Neuschwanstein. Ah, that's it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, at the time, they, they criticized him for all this exaggerated building. But now the government really gets money from <laughs> it from true. tourists. They, they get a lot of money out of it. That's true. I've never yes. visited it. I'm yes, she reverses itself. Yeah, that's true. That's true. actually ended up being a very good investment on this part. Um, when you were in seminary, was there still um, a German element to the school? We uh, had a German society uh-huh. called the Albertus Magnus Verein, the Albert the Great Society. Uh, mm-hmm. And we used to have meetings and the meetings were conducted in German. And uh, at the end, uh, the presiding officer, would, president, would say, Wird jemand den Vorschlag machen zu vertagen? And everyone say, Unterstütz! We're all in favor of closing the meeting. Oh, that's funny. Oh, that would have been crazy, though, because um, when was that? Was that roughly around the 50s when you were yeah, part of that group? Yeah, it was, yeah. Wow. I don't know how long it, it didn't last, but if I'm I, I'm quoting myself and I'm not, I'm not sure, but I think that the Albertus Minus Verein started mm-hmm. in the 1870s or early 1880s. Okay, um, so kind of like when the seminary was built. Yeah, roughly. No, the, the seminary was built in 1857. Oh, that's right. Yeah. But the classes weren't taught in German. No, no, not anymore. Not since the Second World War. uh, Since the First World War. Oh, yeah. That's right. Because I remember... Then there was a change. Because I remember it was listening to this documentary about um, about, uh, Milwaukee, where Milwaukee lost a lot of its German identity, like, at the First World War. And then everyone's like, oh, we can't have hamburgers or anything. We have to have, like, I don't know, something else, not hamburgers, but... Oh, that's when they, the government changed all the names. Uh, sauerkraut became Liberty Cabbage, <laughs> and the uh, Germania uh, building in Milwaukee became the Brunder building, and it was all kind of silly stuff. And everyone's all worried yeah, like, about it. Like, like the Confederate thing. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Um, because, so, the guess other question was... Um, uh, your two parents were both from Piedmont, yeah, correct, which right. is northern, which is northern Italy. Um, and what did you guys grow up speaking? It wasn't Italian. It was we never spoke it. Uh, we always spoke the dialect, the Piedmontese, which we think of as a language. Uh-huh. But um, then in summer, we used to go to summer school with the Italian sisters mm-hmm. to learn to speak regular Italian. Ah, that's cool. Cool. Was it pretty easy making the switch from one to the other? It was, it was confusing. Difficult? Oh, really? Yeah. So many okay. words were. Um, my parents both spoke Italian. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was no problem there. They they spoke both spoke Italian, but um, it, I sometimes I think it would, would confuse one with the other. Mm. Uh, yeah, where you're kind of mixing, yeah. matching. That's true. Um, how did that work then in the seminary? Was it because you were Italian? Was it still a majority no. German no. We're population? All, or was we were it all, all kind one. of mixed. We were all one. There's, I must say, there was a very good feeling. Um, there was a good good spirit. Good camaraderie. Yeah, good spirit. Ah, that's cool. Um, you mentioned a story um, a while back um, about um, one of the Scottish seminarians 
who had a Polish-sounding yeah, last Melvin name. Melvin McCoskey. McCoskey. <laughs> yeah. So what happened? What happened with him? He was my classmate. He was ordained, uh-huh. and uh, <clears throat> the finally they send him always to Polish parishes, but finally the pastor realized that he really didn't know any Polish. <laughs> <laughs> that was our Melvin. Uh, so, but he was Scottish, and they all just thought he was yeah. he was Polish. Oh. His name was Scottish. Oh, that's true. That's a weird crossover. Didn't they have him um, preaching in Polish? Yeah, but he used to. His mother was Polish, uh-huh. but he would read it to her, uh-huh. and from a magazine or something, and then. She, he said oftentimes his mother would say, oh, Melvin, those poor people that have to listen to you. That, uh, you know, you really don't know it, do you? No, he didn't. He admitted he didn't. Uh, he just kept on plugging. Kept on plugging away. Uh, cool. What was just, um, what was it like, uh, classes were like uh, in seminary? What? What were classes like uh, oh. in seminary? What kind of classes well, did you get? Well, it on a college. You had two years of, after high school, you had two years of college. Mm-hmm. And that was really kind of liberal arts. It mm-hmm. was English, um, Greek, um, Latin, um, history. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of liberal arts. And then when you went into the ma- major seminary, then it was two years of philosophy, mm-hmm. and then it was four years of theology. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it was six years altogether. Oh, I see. Um, ah, interesting. That's a lot. Yeah, that makes sense. That's kind of, I think, what a, the time frame is to yeah. some extent um, as well. Um, there was one um, pastor, or not one pastor, one teacher, um, I remember you told me a story of, that he always had the exact same test or something. Oh, yeah. And then he, and then he like, switched it up. Do you want to tell yeah, that? One year he changed it. <clears throat> and the, the question was always the same. Uh, it was... Uh, how did Luther hatch the golden egg that was laid by Erasmus? <laughs> so, oh, so this is a, the, is this was a the theological... Uh, no, then this was in co- uh, the college department. Uh-huh. And um, then one year he gave a whole new question. <laughs> and everyone was just flabbergasted yeah. by it. <laughs> That's funny. Um, that was in your year. Yeah. Was, oh, was, it was your year? No, no. In my time, this had been changed already. We all knew oh. there was a one or two possibility of two things. Oh, I see. That's funny. That's what happens also with like a lot of Christendom. Is some professors um, there was this thing called the F drive where everyone would upload all the oh, study yeah, guides yeah. to it too. Yeah, exactly. And everyone would upload the same study guides, and you you download it, and then. Um, and then one year, Christendom got rid of it. Um, and but there were a couple of seniors and, and people who had graduated who had the whole F drive on like a flash drive oh, yeah. or something. So students were like busily texting them saying like, "Can you send me a copy of the F drive? Because I need like a study guide for like Doctor So and So because he never changes his test." Um, but that was funny. Cool. Um, when were um, when were you ordained? Um, a priest. Nineteen hundred and fifty-five. Ah, cool. Awesome. Long time ago. Long time ago. <clears throat> Good times ago. Um, what was it like, when did you, what was it like celebrating your first uh, Mass back in 1955? Well, I think, first of all, that was something that you all waited for and you all looked forward to. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, in your home parish. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. 
And and in those days, there was always a solemn mass with a a deacon and a subdeacon, mm-hmm. and the pastor was usually the presbyter assistant. Oh, really? Oh, so that's cool. that was your big day. Oh, that's nice. That's really cool. Um, that's really cool that they. I don't know if they do that anymore, um, but it is cool that they brought you back to your home parish. Where yeah, kind you of always, went, you always went back to your home parish. That's really interesting. Um, so then you were a new priest. Um, what was your first um, assignment? Were you put as like an assistant pastor? No, my first assignment was um, St. Joseph in Racine. Mm-hmm. And I was there for five years. And uh, I was sent there because during the summer we used to have something called the villa where we spent a month out at Oconomowoc. Mm-hmm. And we had classes there. Mm-hmm. The uh, Theologians all had to go there, and we had a Spanish class, and I think I did too well in the Spanish class, <laughs> and because and not because it was Spanish, because it was so much like Italian. Yeah. But then, um, when I got to St. Joseph's, then I found out found out that I was also supposed to take care of the Mexican mission oh. on Durand Road. Oh. So then I took care of that. Oh. So you kind of were juggling. Yeah. Well, no, that w- the Mexican mission was usually just on Sundays. Oh, I see. There was one mass down there. Oh, in and then it was all in still all in Latin. Oh, it was not okay. in Spanish. So, what did the Spanish? I had us preach in Spanish. Oh, I see. That makes sense. That was hard. Oh, really? Because I had never done that. Really? So, yeah. did you kind of just write it down beforehand, or what did you do? Well, I got so I could do it, but sometimes if I didn't re- know a word in Spanish, I would. Put it in Italian and mispronounce it <laughs> as if it were Spanish, and then someone would say, "Oh, I, we never heard that word before." And I said, "Well, I don't think you ever will again." <laughs> that's a good. That's a good trick. Actually, I hadn't thought of that before. Um, wow. Yeah, that's actually that that works because it's you yeah. know because they're so they're so. Similar. It was good down there. It was uh, that was just when the Mexican Mexican migrants. Uh, were arriving and mm-hmm. uh, they had a very hard life and mm-hmm. whatever could be done to help them was good. Oh uh, yeah, that's that's cool. But that's interesting because it's still in Latin and everything, so you don't have to say yeah. the mass in Latin, but you just have to preach yeah. to everyone. So, did they still do the readings? Because um, I know when I go to the Latin mass, they always do the readings, you know, up on the altar, and then the priest will go um, and then do them in English. Do them in English. Yeah, did they, did they still do that back then? With Spanish, yeah, um, but and I do it here on two on Sunday. I do it in, in Latin and then I read it in English after. Okay, that's really cool how things kind of don't change <laughs> to some extent, or it's still they still end up doing those things. Um, I guess yeah, that kind of leads me. Um, I guess into my next question. Um, so we're dating in nineteen fifty-five. Um, the Second Vatican Council begins. Was it nineteen sixty or nineteen sixties? Yeah, yeah in nineteen sixty-two or so, roughly. And then there's all the different changes um, liturgically. Um, what was that transition like? Um, well, in uh, just in general. After five years at St. Joseph's, I spent five years in Milwaukee at Old St. Mary's. Okay. And there again, I worked with the Puerto Ricans and the. Uh, Cubans. Okay, so now did you have to do a different pronunciation? Uh, they, <laughs> sometimes they were very hard to understand because they talked so fast. Oh, I see. Yeah. And they dropped the end of the. They have the what they call costeño. They dropped the last end of the word, like uh, oh. instead of saying atrás, they would say atrás. 
Dos would become Do. Oh. Uh, but then I, from there, I then I went to Mount Carmel, and that's where the changes came in. Oh, okay. Interesting. What was, um, how was that, I guess, how was it implemented? Did they kind of call all of you guys together and were like, yeah, well, hey, we're going to make I these changes? I think I remember or? one year all the priests came together, and in fact it was at Mount Carmel, and they were just talking about all this stuff, and some saying, oh, we'll never be able to chant this in English, you know, and that sort of thing. But I think there were, probably there were two, oh, two divisions. Uh, those who had been waiting for this to come for a long time, uh -huh. that they wanted it in English and mm -hmm. were happy about the changes, mm -hmm. and those who were more conservative and kind of held back a little bit. More worried about... But there was still always the question of obedience. Yeah, that's true. Um, how was the? How did the archbishop um, implement it? Was it... Did he call the guys together? Well, there are certain or? things that he said that you should do, for example, you had to have a, an altar where you could face the people where before, mm -hmm. you know, the altars were out there. Mm -hmm. And so I remember when I got to Mount Carmel, uh, the altar was up on top there and I mm -hmm. had to have it moved down. Oh. But um, it, it, was, it was not, um, at least my experience, I maybe uh, others had other experiences, but mine was, they were always very kind about everything. Okay. And they had no problem with it. Understanding. Yeah. How did the um, how the parishioners react to it? Um, I think it was a matter of adjustment. Some of them were very. I I must say that some of them were very happy mm -hmm. about it being in English that mm -hmm. they could at least understand it and mm -hmm. not have to you know look into look the, the missile yeah. and everything. Yeah. And um, even facing the people, mm -hmm. uh, some liked it, some didn't like it. I don't know. I I still. I thought there was an advantage, and and I would I now of course here I because I say it in Latin I always have it back to the people, mm -hmm. but otherwise uh, facing the people was good too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It it could have all been reasonable, except for those who didn't really follow the rules and exaggerated uh -huh. and went kind of off yeah. into. But the... otherwise, I I don't think it was bad. Okay, that's cool. That's an interesting story. Um, so yeah, I guess with um, Our Lady of Mount Carmel, was that the first um, uh, parish you were at, kind of like full time as the yeah, no, I was pastor I was the pastor there. I, I was, first, I was administrator because uh -huh. I wasn't old enough to become pastor yet. Oh, I see. In those days, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, no, I I was happy there. I was there forty years. Oh yeah, that's right. You were there <laughs> long time. That's true. Um, what was the makeup of? Um, our Lady of Mount Carmel, because I remember me and my family, we came there in about 2007 or so, um, but we weren't kind of like um, some of the other different people. Were there with no, the I think Sicilian? it had changed already by then. Okay. Um, the Italian part began to fade out a little bit. Uh -huh. Like um, I used to preach in Italian on Sundays, and then finally I looked out there and I said, gee, you know, the, the people are out there speak English. Yeah, and it's, it was the, the grandparents and so forth, and the, and many of them spoke just their their dialect. And uh -huh. So I asked, I mean, how many feel that we have to have this? And the majority wanted in English. So I had an English, and I preached in Italian at Christmas, Easter, 
and the parish feast day, so oh, yeah. three times a year. Mm-hmm. I still, yeah, I remember that because it was when there was and the parish all, festival. You, yeah, you preach it three like, times. Cool. Yeah. But otherwise, the the Italian disappeared. I had most of all the Italian was in confessions mm-hmm. or like in funerals mm-hmm. where you had to deal with the people. But otherwise, it kind of faded. I see. That makes sense. When you were originally there, weren't they more um, Sicilian? And no, southern Italian. No, or? they were um, they were mostly from Calabria, which is oh, the, I see. Two, the boot the tip of oh, the yeah. boot way down south. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of actually where uh, Joachim of Fiora <laughs> was. He was uh, where Joachim of Fiora was in Calabria. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I remember I was talking to my advisor um, about it um, about my Fulbright because I applied for a Fulbright yeah. um, to to actually work in Milan. Um, and so I did mention being at a parish that had, you know, you know, at, for for me being, you know, German and Polish and Irish, it was still very there's still a very large Italian element. And so I wrote about being in Kenosha, and he like looked up and said that he's like, oh, Kenosha's sister city is Constanza, Constanza in in, in, Calabria. in Calabria, yeah. So I was like, oh, that's kind of cool, but I didn't it didn't make it into the final cut of the Fulbright, but oh. it's still, but it still made it made there, but but the parish festival. Parish Festival did. <laughs> um, I still remember it was, I forget which year it was, um, when Italy won the World Cup. Oh, yes. And everyone went crazy at the Parish Festival. As <laughs> so I wrote that in, it was of like, course, yeah, of course. Yeah, so I'm hoping some some people in Italy, they'll read it. And they'll, they'll read it and be like, oh, yes, he was happy the when World the World Cup. <laughs> exactly. Everyone. No, they, um, yeah, I think there's a, a change that comes with. Uh, you know, the first generation, I mean, the parents may not be speaking English yet mm-hmm. because they came from over there. The next generation, the their children may, will understand and speak. The third generation possibly may understand a little, but they don't speak it at all. Mm. And by the fourth generation, it's just gone. It's, gone. Yeah. Yeah. it's a progression. Mm-hmm. And you accept it as it comes. Yeah. I think I've seen that a little bit with some of the different um, Hispanic uh, yeah. groups in, in the United States. Because John, um, when he works with the cows up in northern Wisconsin, um, I went and visited him. <laughs> and Good. And it's, yeah, and it's really cool seeing all the different, how they actually yeah. make the milk and all that stuff. But all the workers are all from either Mexico or yeah. Central America. And they really barely speak any any English. Um, but John said that they're they're like their general their kids are kind of like starting to lose it um, the Spanish ability as well which is which is interesting it's it's weird you're right it's how that normal development yeah it's it's a normal progression mm-hmm. yeah when you go to another country and start start just like being inculcated yeah and then um, I mean the old way was like with with my parents we never spoke English uh-huh uh, I remember one time I did tell my dad I said I would not speak Italian anymore because we were the only ones in the neighborhood, and uh-huh. he said, "Oh, fine, it's okay." He said, "Because you will not speak to me, and I will not speak to you." <laughs> oh no! <laughs> he said, "While you're in my house, you speak as I do. When you go through the front door, you can do it. You speak like everybody else does." Oh, that's really. Funny. You have to be broad-minded. Yeah. You have to be open-minded. Yeah, that's true. Wow, that's interesting. Um, what were so, I guess some of the. Um, what were some of the good things about being a pastor at Alema Carmel? What were some of the more harder things? Well, I think spoken? some of the good things was um, you worked with the people and uh, you tried to build up the church. 
and you you had a school mm-hmm. and you saw a progression of gen- again a progression of generations of children mm-hmm. and you were happy to find that some of them did exceptionally good you mm-hmm. know some became lawyers one girl became a dentist and uh, another and several of them became nurses and that mm-hmm. sort of thing so I mean you were happy with that and uh, also that you could have an have an influence upon them mm-hmm. uh, influence for good mm-hmm. not interference yeah. but influence oh uh, yeah it's true because you were there for, yeah. for 40 years so yeah, yeah you were pretty yeah you saw one generation after another oh so you baptize them yeah. on first communion and and marry them and just that's really interesting like the family I, I spent Christmas day with uh, um, they have they have grand they have a grand they have one grandchild but I mean, I baptized the mother, mm-hmm. and we always had our Christmas with the, with her parents because they were the same kind of Italian that we were. Uh-huh. So I mean, it was always that, and they're so good to me now. Oh uh, yeah, that's so true. I I've I've never stopped appreciating it. Yeah, that's true. Like being part of that yeah. community, much. That's really that's really important. You're right. Um, cool. What were some of the, like the more difficulties uh, being a pastor, or should we just skip that <laughs> entirely? Or? Well, I don't know. Now I think back, and um, I don't. I can't remember that I really had something that uh, you know. There could sometimes there were misunderstandings with the school mm-hmm. between the the parent and the teacher. Uh, Sometimes within parish organizations, you had misunderstandings. Mm-hmm. But I, in all honesty, I can't think of anything that was really overwhelming. Ah, that's good. That's good. Sounds like it's pretty, um, pretty peaceful and straightforward. It was good at that good. time. It was good. That's good. That's good. Um, so I guess to move away a little bit from uh, Kenosha, you also have done. You've all done some extensive traveling <laughs> across Europe. Um, and whatnot. Which was um, which uh, country was your favorite to visit? Well, I I would uh, prescind from including Italy because oh. I had uh, you know family ties there. My aunt, my uncle were there. Uh, my my roots were there. My grandparents l- lived and died there. Um, I I liked Spain. Really? Yeah, I liked Spain. And on the opposite end, I like Germany. Really? Ah, yeah. Wunderbar. Yeah. Uh, Spain had uh, all kind of a, an, a peaceful quality about it at the uh-huh. times that I went there. I don't think it's that way now, but it, it did at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just thought it was wonderful. And then Germany... Um, Maybe reminded me a little bit of Milwaukee. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. No, I liked Germany. I uh-huh. liked southern Germany. Oh, uh, Bavaria. Uh, Bavaria. Bayern. Munich. Yeah. München. Yeah. Uh, they were kind of uh, free spirits, <laughs> which the rest of the Germans aren't. And I really? Can, and I, I, in fact, I, it, it's a priest from Germany who is here, who teaches here, actually. Mm-hmm. He's quite a scholar. And... Uh, I asked him about would he ever like to go back to Germany to live, and he said, no, not really. He said, the, the people have changed a lot. Hmm. He said, they're not as open and friendly oh. as they used to be. And I said, well, I mean, 
He said, well, except he said in Bavaria. Uh, he said, they can still have a good life. But he said, a lot of them are really uptight about everything. And really? He said, it's, it's different than it was. Interesting. Because I remember when I, because I was um, in Eichstatt for, yeah. for like four weeks studying studying German there. And I mean, I like I loved it in Bavaria. They're really nice. Yeah. They're friendly. They're, you could just bike everywhere. It was they, picturesque. They overeat. They overdrink. <laughs> exactly. We were, um, we were playing this uh, game in the front. It was, um, it, we had to sign up for these different workshops. And one of them was like drinking in Bavaria. So like obviously all the Americans, they all sign up for it, <laughs> which I did also. Um, and so they played this game where we, we each had to bring two beers to the to the to the library to the classroom and all the americans have them in paper bags and so the we came in with these paper bags as we had bought them at the gas station or something and the the teacher just started laughing at all of us americans she was just like you don't have to put them in, in bags um but it was this grand game where you had to like throw a ball to knock over a like can or something and then everyone on your side had to drink real quickly and then they had to run and and it was funny because all the Americans were saying, oh, so you lose when you finish it, right? And you like, loot drinking is the punishment in the game. And all the Germans looked at it as funny, like, no, that's that's the reward. <laughs> like, you guys are trying to get it done first. Yeah, they, um, it was funny. Like, even the small, little children, I mean, will drink beer. And, mm -hmm. But I think it's much more uh, ordered. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that they 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 do have a discipline in them mm -hmm. that you don't find in other places uh -huh. and there's an order f for everything that's true that's very much that's you don't walk you march <laughs> that's true um that's something i've kind of found has been funny between um northern germany and southern germany because i did go up to cologne for for a couple days um and i was talking with a guy and i was saying like, oh yeah well i'm, I'm you know in bavaria and he was like oh all that Bayerish is yeah. their accent. So I was talking to then um, one of the um, Germans who was from Bavaria, and she was giving some of the different accents between regular Hochdeutsch and and their Bayerish. It's just like this. This sounds almost like a southern drawl, almost like instead of saying "ich," they say "e" or something. It's like it's this weird parallels between yeah, and kind uh, of like the south in U.S. U.S. and the south in Germany. One part they say "ish." Uh -huh. um, Kirsch, for church. Uh huh. Yeah. And Kirsch is also a cherry. Oh. So <laughs> you have to tell from the sentence that it's used in. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> but uh, I no, I did like Germany. I liked the discipline. I liked the order, um, and I think it was a source of amazement that you know after being having been so destroyed in the war. Mm-hmm that they could build up. And I think the Germans have a gift that most people don't have. Uh, not the, not every German, obviously, but mm -hmm. I mean, the, the your type of German, the scholarly type. Oh, okay. uh, <laughs> Try to be. They have a what they call a Weltanschauung, mm -hmm. a vision of the world. Uh. They're not just, but I think they speak with, um, they have an, a world vision. Yeah. And uh, that's why I think scholarliness Mm -hmm. is embedded in the German. Really? To be scholarly. Interesting to have that world. Yeah, view. and when they write, it maybe it's, it's very difficult sometimes to read and understand. True. But they never just stay on the surface. They go down mm -hmm. and, and, and give you what is the best. They dig, yeah. 
Yeah, it's yeah. true. I mean, I know back from like when I do, like when I'm studying medieval history and stuff, especially with, with prophecy, um, like every other old like Latin edition of like these prophecies, it's all done by Germans. Yeah. Like they're just the 19th century for, for medieval history. Like you, you better give a lot of credit to those Germans because they've done all of like the hard manuscript work that I then don't have to end up doing quite but as it's, much. I think that's, they've always been that way. They've always been scholarly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the are North or South Germans? <laughs> um, we're actually, uh, when I looked it up, there's a rumor that were partially um, uh, lower Germans um, in Bavaria a little bit, but I think when I looked into it a little bit more, we're a little more on the eastern border with France a little bit. Oh. So, yeah. So a little bit there. So well, I'm, I'm hoping a little, there's a little Irish. <laughs> yeah. Give, give it, yeah. <laughs> hopefully. Hopefully. Um, what was um, traveling to Italy like then? Because you kind of like put that aside as like, well, well did you feel like you kind of had a, a foot in both worlds a but, little bit? But or? Let, me, let me put it this way and, and see if I can. Mm -hmm. I preferred the Italy of the 1950s uh -huh. to what I would find today. Oh, really? In the 1950s, um, most people didn't have a car, they had a bicycle. Mm -hmm. And I think there was more of a, if I can apply it to Italians, there was a more of a feeling of Gemütlichkeit. Gemütlichkeit. <laughs> I think um, they were happier. What, what was... And oh, uh, yeah. mm -hmm. then it became a competitive thing who had, same as here, Mm -hmm. We had the biggest house and the, uh, the best of everything. And then if you bought clothes, you always had to look inside to see what the trademark was and uh, that see. sort of thing. And I found life was more simple then. And in the towns, too, I thought the town life was more simple. Okay. And then it became mechanized uh -huh. more. And But I, I liked the Italy of the 50s. Probably the people that lived there didn't because... They were hard times, but for mm -hmm. I, I, I really liked it. Mm -hmm. That must have been kind of cool, though, being able to go back because you obviously visited Piedmont um, it, several times. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, that must first, have been, first ahead. time I went, I was eight years old. Oh really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, my mother and I went to see my grandparents. Oh, that's really cool. And um, you know, I can't imagine the difference there was between then and now. Mm -hmm. Because it was all very simple. Mm -hmm. I don't want to use the word primitive, but mm -hmm. unspoiled. There we go. Yeah. Unspoiled. That's a good term for it. Um, were your, I think you mentioned once your um, mother and father were from different villages. And about they seven, had, eight miles apart. And didn't they have like different accents or something between the two? Certain words they were, certain words that they used were completely different. Really? And I they did have a different accent, which I couldn't identify, mm -hmm. except the one time we have some cousins visiting from Canada, mm -hmm. and they were all from my mother's hometown. Mm -hmm. or they, In fact, they were her cousins. And uh, the one said to my mother, oh, Maria, you, you, your accent is just like your husband's now. <laughs> and my mother said, oh, I, I, I did so well, there's anybody here from our town. <laughs> but they, they never lost it. They... And they used all these words that were typical of the town. Oh, that's really cool. But uh, I, I don't know. I couldn't tell if there was an accent or not. I, if I, I speak, I think 
probably with the accent from my father's town because I learned it from at, at home. Mm -hmm. Wow. But uh, And they're only eight miles apart. Seven or eight you know, kilometers. Okay, miles. so less than eight miles. Yeah. <laughs> they're even closer. That's really crazy. That's like something you don't think of where there's like that much there could be that much different yeah. within within just several yeah, in our country i mean you wouldn't even think of that yeah no you drive a little bit and you're just like everyone's still speaking the same thing um that's really interesting um there was a term what was uh, i think a term you mentioned to me before it was about the sound of the church bell oh yeah was, campanalismo campanile yeah. is the church bell tower mm -hmm. campanalismo is the you go as far as you hear the mm -hmm. church bell, um, that's and you don't say. venture outside of that. Oh, you okay. see, but that's all gone now too. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. that's completely that gone. Um, that's it, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was saying it's almost a little bit like Sam from the Lord of the Rings. Oh, when he's like, I haven't gone this far out of the Shire, Mister Frodo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, some of those people never left their towns. You know, they, they lived and died there, and uh -huh. never traveled too far or anything. And yet others did too, mm -hmm. like um, my mother's fa grandfather mm -hmm. had a lot of land, mm -hmm. and all of his sons worked for him, mm -hmm. and until he died, they owned nothing. He owned everything. Mm. But then in winter, when there was no farming, they would go and f work somewhere else. They'd go to France, for example, and work oh. in France, or in Switzerland. Huh, Interesting. And then come summer, they go back again to work for their father. Interesting. And then finally, once he had passed away, then yeah, the land Yeah, then was the divided. land would be divided. That's why the farms never got to be too big, because they were constantly divided. Um, yeah, parceled off yeah. Between, the different, between the different families. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Did you ever have ancestry traced, maybe? Um, I think my mom's done a lot of that. Um for her side and my dad's side um, a little bit, um, but I'm not quite sure where the Irish and the Polish um, oh. parts are. Um, not 100% sure yet. I gotta look it up, but we're such far generations <laughs> away from the original immigrants. Yeah, I wonder so, maybe you could even find there are still down there. Maybe, that would be pretty, that would be kinda cool. Um, but yeah, it'd be, it'd be weird because well, whenever I would talk to um, to a German in, in, in uh, Eichstadt, they would always, they'd ask me what my name was, they'd tell me their name was, because obviously, you know, it's, it's like wall builder, and they would, their eyes would light up, they're like, ah, oh, that's like Deutsch, <laughs> something like that, yeah, it was kind of funny. You're one of us. Yeah, I know, they were, yeah, they were really nice, but, oh, that's really cool. Um, okay, so I guess only a few more questions. Um, okay. Yeah, don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, so I had a, uh, I have a friend of mine who's in, he's in seminary, um, Charles Barmeo, which I think that's what slipped into my head oh. when I said Charles Barmeo instead of St. Francis de Sales, but he was in Charles, he's right now currently in Charles Barmeo. That's um, in Philadelphia, In right? Philly, yeah. yeah, exactly. And, uh, he had a question, because I told him I was going to be interviewing you, and he, he was wondering, um, how has your, uh, prayer life changed from when you were kind of like first ordained a priest to, to kind of now, like, what's been some of the, some movements? Well, I think, um, when you're first ordained, um, but, but I can't make a general statement for everybody mm -hmm. because in some cases I think you develop a certain scrupulosity mm -hmm. like you've got to get this done at a certain time and, mm -hmm. and as time goes on you 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 lose that scrupulosity mm -hmm. 
but I think you do a better job. Mm -hmm. So there's more substance and yeah. more depth. And I think there's the there's more of an idea of praying because I want to pray, not because I'm expected mm -hmm. Regimental. to cover this at a certain time. Like the Germans. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. Yeah, I think that's the difference. Oh, that's really interesting. That's really cool. Um, what do you think um, for, this is, I guess, another more, more general question. Um, what do you see, I guess, the church, the future of the church, as you've seen a lot of different changes and movements? Where do you see it kind of well, projecting off? For myself, the there future? are things I like. There are things that I don't like. Mm -hmm. But I think that for its peace of mind and tranquility of spirit, I would always fall back on the words of Christ. I will be with you all days, even to the end of the world. Yeah. So he's not going to let everything fall apart. Yeah, it's true. As sometimes you do worry about yeah. that. Or you think that you're, I mean, we're, one priest isn't going to change everything. Yeah. Uh, priests have changed things through the centuries by the good works that they did and so on and so forth. But uh, the reality is still that comes from God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he will be with us. Yeah. That's true. That's cool. Um, all right, yeah. Um, that's just about it. Okay. Usually we end um, Usually we end the episodes real quick with just like a brief words of wisdom. Do you have any words of wisdom for, for anyone? Just in general. They can be anything. It can well, be yeah. really whatever I, you want. I'm very, I'm very appreciative of the fact that we are beginning, not beginning, but press perhaps continuing, mm -hmm. to produce young people who uh, have an inclination towards scholarliness. Oh. Mm -hmm. uh, we have, I shouldn't say this, but we have engineers, mm -hmm. we have uh, mechanics, we have so forth, but we also need scholars. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that we need uh, to create a, an atmosphere in which scholarly scholarliness mm -hmm. is appreciated and it's encouraged. Mm -hmm. And I think we need that. Yeah, I would agree. That's part of the reason why we did, me and uh, Peter started up the podcast, was we wanted to be able to have some, some good um, yeah. scholarly intellectual conversations. Um, and it grew out of at Christendom when we'd have this these conversations like oh we should we should keep we should keep the ball rolling so no I, I wholeheartedly um, agree with that I, so I, I guess I can't really have any better words of wisdom than to to concur with you Father. <laughs> okay, well I uh, hope you guys all enjoyed that uh, episode or that interview I should say uh, with Father Riquetta. Peter, what were your what were your kind of like initial thoughts on it? I thought Father Riquetta provided an amazing oral history of what it was like to be a Catholic priest in the American Northern Midwest during a really interesting point in history where he was serving immigrant communities and um, just providing a, um, a much needed, um, he, what he did in this podcast is he provided a kind of a rare look into the Catholic history mm -hmm. of the immigrant communities and i really appreciate him sitting down with you and talking about it um something else that i that really stuck out into my my head a little bit through the interview was the importance of language um mm -hmm. in group identity um that language is a fundamental aspect of 
how you understand yourself as as a group. There was the one story he told about his father saying, like, you speak, you know, or a Piedmontese dialect here. You can yeah. say whatever you want when you go out, but here yeah. you speak Piedmontese. And um, I think that's just a really interesting thought of when we think about ourselves as Catholics. Um, and I guess to go a little bit on a little bit of a traditionalist uh, shtick here. But I think that really kind of does show a little bit the importance of Latin in the church. Um, not necessarily like everyone doesn't have time to sit down and learn Latin. Of course, that's understandable. Um, but I really think w- you really have to understand language um, as an important modifier of identity. Yep. And that once, you know, these different, because you mentioned the different uh, levels and generations of immigrants, it's like, you know, the parents, that's what they speak at home. And then it's it kind of goes down and kind of slowly but surely that immigrant group starts to be more dispersed and then you kind of have like the traditional like oh yeah i'm irish i get really happy on saint patrick's day but like you don't know any gaelic or anything um and it becomes you know and even to some extent with italians right like there are some italians i'm sure who still know italian but there's a lot of their kids who are just like oh i'm italian i was really happy when Italy won the World Cup or something like that. And so it becomes more of I wouldn't say a caricature that's a little bit harsh, but in many ways becomes um, uh, like, you know, I wouldn't say like a fan base kind of thing, but in the same way, like that you kind of cheer for like, I don't know, the Packers or some other sort of part that's, you know, you're definitely attached to it, but it's not the same where you're actually still a part of it as much. And so I think that was a really interesting thing that came out was the importance of language um, in, in, in group for in identity formation. I I mean, you're absolutely right. And the only thing I would add on to that is that throughout, at least when I've read about European history, um, one of the things that they, that, was done to attempt to um, eliminate different groups from either Russia or Germany it was the elimination of minority languages, yep. um, especially in Russia, where the Russians attempted to eliminate Yiddish from oh. Yiddish speaking groups. They wanted to, they destroyed the Yiddish newspapers, the Yiddish theaters. Um, so, you know, it's, you, you kind of take it for granted you know, if you all speak the same language, but if there's, it is what ties you together. And if anybody wanted to kind of eliminate your identity, that would be a very good way to do it. That's where you go. I mean, that's what the, that's what the British did in Ireland, as far as I know, yeah. with outlawing uh, Gaelic, right? Like yes. that's, they understand that as, as an important, as an important aspect of group identity, I guess uh, going off that, um, was interesting kind of hearing about the different towns in Italy and Northern yeah. in Piedmont where it's like they're five or seven or 10 kilometers away, uh, but they have like totally different words. Yep. And I'm thinking to myself, Oh my gosh, I drove five to 10 kilometers to go to mass this morning. Right. Yeah. For the, for the solemnity yes. of Mary, the like Theotokos. Um, mm-hmm. That's amazing. That's really interesting when you think that these communities can be so self-contained to an extent that they develop um, their own dialects and their own words for a thing. I mean, you have that a little bit, I guess, to a tad extent, Um, like in Wisconsin, everyone like like you call a water fountain a bubbler. Right. Like, and everyone does it like that's a very, but that's yeah. such a small micro thing. Like even when I went to Chris to them, they'd be like, oh, we're some water. But yeah, the bubbler's down there. And somebody would look at me like, what are you talking about? It's, like, it's a bubbler. The water bubbles up. It was invented in Wisconsin. We get to call it what we want. Right. Um, so, but little, and like you go across the border into Illinois and they're just like water fountain. Yep. And that's just a little small, small, small example of, of a, of a larger phenomenon that would develop if you don't have as much communications. It made me think back 
um, to uh, this book uh, that Jacques Legoff wrote. He was a, his, a French historian, uh, so he was he was very astute as a Frenchman. Mm-hmm. Um, and he made this argument that the Middle Ages didn't really end until the 1800s. Um, because his argument went along the lines of something like for the average lived peasant life between like 600 AD to like 1800 AD didn't really change that much. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. you have some things come in and you have some developments and like in the 1200s, they develop a new type of plow and stuff like that. And obviously like right. things change, especially maybe if you're in a certain part of Germany and then you become Lutheran. Um, right. But again, it's it's not like going when you become a Lutheran. It's not like going from like Catholicism to like straight up Southern evangelical like rock band. Right. right? You're still it's still very right. there's still as far as liturgy goes, there's a lot of similarities there. Yeah. Um, and so I think you got a little bit of that hint of that still that whole old kind of medieval order holding on and kind of kind of at the end of it uh, at its tail end in in you know when he when he would travel back to Italy with his mom um, of yep. these small little villages that are essentially they're they're essentially together right like yeah. that's like like what what is 10 kilometers like a three minute train ride now or five minute train yeah. ride or something um, but that they would get to the point where they were developing that they would have their own accents as well um, is really I think a really cool interesting kind of look into that um, into that world that's kind of that kind of faded away um, but I just thought that part was really cool really interesting something you didn't really expect and I, I totally agree and what I when you asked him about um, about Italy and he said he liked the Italy of the 1950s much more than what he would like if he went today. Yeah. And it, to me, and then he even, he, he mentioned, you know, the life of the Italian in the 1950s might've been difficult, but it was untouched by modern society essentially. Yeah. And it still had that connection to the medieval Italy mm-hmm. where you are very communal and mm-hmm. you are very connected to the earth. And I think that that's, um, it's a look into the past that is being lost and yeah. it's, it's and that that you, you, you only go as far as you can still hear the church bell of your local parish. Yeah. That's such a cool exactly. auditory like, reminder of the distance yes. you have between you, you and your, and your, in your hometown. Um, yep. But no, I just like so much of it, like they're la- like the, the concept. And that's one of the things I've always uh, admired about father again is just, I mean, like he's, he's popping off like German phrases and stuff in the interview is really yeah. cool. Um, but I think the, the, one of the things that kind of came up throughout the episode or throughout the interview, I should say, was um, just the importance of language and just how that shapes and forms um, um, different, different groups. I mean, uh, just one more comment on that. You've mentioned on the podcast before that the, it's actually kind of recent that a written history is more important than the oral history. Mm-hmm. I, I remember you talking about how, you know, for most of human history, the oral tradition was way more reliable than whatever was written down because you could at least trace the knowledge through the oral, through who was speaking to you. Cause you could say, Oh, he's the son of this person. And they, you know, you can kind of create like a, a lineage mm-hmm. with yeah. a written piece of paper. It's hard to certify who wrote it. Yeah. Um, then anyone can write a piece of paper. <laughs> exactly. Right. And yeah. then it wasn't until there was a process of, certifying and you know like there was a process to make to help with that but for most of human history the oral history and being able to understand what was being said was 
very important. Yeah, because it's it's the community itself that holds yeah. the key and the knowledge to that information as opposed to a piece of paper. It's almost like, not to go off on a uh, more anarcho uh, scale, <laughs> it's kind of like Bitcoin. Yeah, right. <laughs> Everyone kind of holds a little piece of, of the blockchain and nobody yeah. can go and like inflate the currency in the same way. As long, yeah. If everyone holds a little bit of the information, um, you know, for like land deeds or who's going to yeah. be where and all that stuff who's paid taxes stuff like that like it, you know it's, it's really harder to it's hard to scam the system because it's like a chain link fence right because like all the different parts are connected and they they kind of bend together when when you know an outside thing tries to, to come in and, and screw up with the whole the whole web so yeah that's 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 a good point um that's a very good point um any other thoughts that came to your mind when you were listening to it um not really. I mean, other than just, I really enjoyed all the little vignettes of his time at the seminary and, mm -hmm. you know, him going to Germany, like all of that was just great. And I, it was really, I really appreciated you sitting down with him. Yeah, no, it was, it was a lot of fun. I'm really glad we were able to do it. Um, the one thing I did like uh, a lot was uh, his end, his words of wisdom, yeah. uh, which was the, about the intellectual life. And I, it made, it got me thinking a little bit more about the role of the intellectual life as a Catholic. And obviously, you know, the intellectual life as a Catholic is not the be all and end all of being a Catholic, right? Like, you know, participating in God's grace, you know, salvation yeah. and faith, like that's, that's the end goal, right? right. Uh, there are, there are plenty of great scholars uh, who are very astute individuals who probably go to hell because they don't have charity, right? Like that, right. that, that, that doesn't, just because you can quote the summa doesn't mean you're destined for heaven. Yeah. Um, although it probably helps your chances if you actually incorporate in your life. Yeah. Um, I was like, wait, which parts, which, which parts of the summa I only, only incorporated the objections. <laughs> that was, that was the wrong part. Oh no. Um, anyway, but like, I think, this is something I think when we look back and I think there's a little bit of a nostalgia when we talk about the old uh, world of, you know, the Italian cities kind of um, going to the wayside. Um, but I also think this is in many ways a Janus type episode. We're looking back and we're looking to the yeah. future. Um, and I think the future, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, the, the trade-off of not having that same uh, community that uh, Father Rick had spoke us uh, so highly about is that, you know, with the advent of technology, like you and me and like everyone listening to this podcast has like 20 or 30 or 40 times more information that they could pull up about the Catholic church and about the doctrines and about the dogmas and about the theology of the Catholic church than Thomas Aquinas could. Oh yeah. Like, just straight up. Like yeah. it, there's, there's no, even no comparison. Yep. Um, and so I think that's something that we need to think of as like an opportunity because there are so many different people out there, good Orthodox Catholics that you can listen to who have either through podcast format um, or just through your own research. I mean, so many of like the different encyclicals, they're all up online. Like, and you can like, as much as everyone rags on paperback books, it makes for good, cheap, you know, material. If you want to get it, like there is like so much information. If you want to, you can live out the intellectual life, you know, while still working a regular job, yeah. right? Like, because uh, it wasn't Shaklagoff; it was the historian before him, George Duby, who made up the he made the arguments that there's uh, three societies, three societies in the Middle Ages: those who work, those who pray, and those who fight. Mm. Um, and you don't really get to interchange on that, right? Those right. who pray pray for everyone, and those who work provide the sustenance for the other two, and those who fight kind of just mess everything up and have <laughs> wars and stuff. Um, but like. You know, and we look back at that and it's like, well, now we can work, but we can also be those who pray and those who study. Yeah. Um, 
the flip side to it is though with all that information at our fingertips we still sit around and be like oh man let's go see what's up on netflix now <laughs> right yeah. um yeah. So, I mean, when Father Rick had talked about the importance of, of the intellectual life um, in, in the development and formation of a Catholic, I think that's, that's very true and that's, that's very important. And I think that it's good, though, that we are at a point from, a, I guess, a technological um, perspective that, no, you can, if you want to go through and start reading chunks of the Summa and then maybe you don't understand it and get, excuse me, get someone who can help you understand it, you yeah. can find all that if you just look hard enough. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Same thing with like Latin, like you can find ways of, of you know, learning s- some very rudimentary Latin for almost free. Yes. Um, in a ways that like a medieval would be like, you just learned all that, like for free without having to like get a benefice or anything. <laughs> like you could just do that on like your evenings. And you're like, yep. Yeah. yep. <laughs> um, so I think that's a really important part to think that, you know, we, we, we have such an opportunity to be able to develop ourselves as Catholics in the intellectual traditions and theologies of the church. Yep. Um and just to take advantage of it, but oh, that's so true. I, I mean, there was the other night you, you brought up just doing Latin on your free time, and the other night I found a free Latin crossword online, and I was just to kind of brush up on my vocab. Mm-hmm. And I was doing it, and I was like, man, and I was kind of amazed, like I can do a Latin crossword for free and just kind of work on my own, like without having to go to school. Yeah, it's. Uh, and you're so right. Like the almost the totality of human knowledge is contained on the web, and it can be used for either incredible good or incredible evil, or just incredible yeah. waste of time, which subsists in evil. But yeah, which subsists in evil. And so we need to, as Catholics, yep, we gotta use it to our advantage and become saints through, you know, through its through its benefits. Yeah, yeah, it's true. That's true. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I enjoyed that. I thought that was a lot of fun. That was our first hate. That was the first priest we had on her. That was the first cleric. Because Andrew right. didn't count. Andrew didn't count. Because he's no, like, Andrew does not yet. Uh, not yet. We don't really know what Andrew is at this point. He's that's like right. higher than layman, but lower than cleric. So that's right. We're well, somewhere it, in the middle. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if we were back when they still had all the different orders, it would be a little bit more clear where he was at in the, you know. Oh, I guess I'm so glad we got rid of those orders because I didn't want to have to give them any. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, speaking of that, um, hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Um, we should be coming up with some other cool things. Um, Andrew has not joined the Carthusians. Uh, he hasn't been on the podcast since like September. So people who were just like, where's Andrew? It's like, well, he didn't join the Carthusians, contrary <laughs> to popular belief. Yes. He was just like doing stuff at seminary, hard labor so doing it, the intellectual stuff I, that's the charitable interpretation um <laughs> but um yeah so uh he's going to be come on he might uh get another uh seminarian to come on uh with him we'll see we're cool. still in the works of that trying to get clark to pay off on that is a little bit like trying to invest with bernie madoff so uh we'll see <laughs> not completely it's not as bad um, so we'll see hopefully that comes up um until then guys uh peter you got any last words of wisdom uh i hope everyone has a happy new year and you know um just keep moving forward that would be my words of wisdom all right. Well, my words of wisdom are short. If you have New Year's resolutions, good. But if it was good on December 31st, you should have started it then. Anyway. All right. Cheers. Yep. Cheers.
<laughs> 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 you know, 